Our reading for today comes from Ephesians verses, um, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all and in all. What is the weirdest way you've ever hurt yourself? <laughs> so as, as I was talking with some friends one time, we were noticing that as we get older, our bodies get hurt in just like the dumbest ways. So like if we sneeze, <laughs> or like turn around to flush a toilet, or like brush our hair, or sleep with a different pillow one night. These seemingly harmless actions can cause us to be unable to turn our neck for like a week. Because the reality is, our bodies change as we get older. Now, some of us have made peace with that reality. We've adjusted our routine accordingly. Um, Some of us, though, struggle to make peace with the facts of life. We still try and ride a roller coaster or like cliff dive into a lake or wrestle with our kids, and then we pay the price. Now, if we were to go to a doctor about these aches and pains, they would inevitably tell us, well, you're not 24 anymore, so you can either get on board with that reality or you can continue to experience this self-inflicted pain. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that Paul Travers just read for us, Paul's being like the doctor, the doctor who tells her patient, it's time to face the facts, you're getting older. See, the early church was made up of diverse people. Not just diverse like they had different favorite flavors of ice cream, okay? But diverse like came from different parts of the world, had different ideas about what it meant to be a good member of society, had different ideas of what it meant to follow Jesus. There were Jews who had purity laws and festivals and worship habits that they'd been doing for thousands of years, and that's how they understood what it meant to follow God. And there were Gentiles who used to have those same kinds of rituals and worship but in pagan temples. It was not easy to be unified. But Paul wrote about unity. That must have seemed like a crazy thing to say. Just be unified. Okay? Just just do it. Just be unified. Well, how could they be unified when the Jewish Christians overlooked the Gentile widows and the distribution of food? How could they be unified when the Gentile Christians didn't follow the rules and traditions that the Jewish Christians understood to be signs and markers of holiness? Unity. Unity must have sounded in some ways ridiculous. (laughs) Just ridiculous. But still, Paul wrote of unity. And I wonder if we today might find the command to unity just as difficult, just outright ridiculous. How can we be unified when we don't agree on things like what's sin and what's not? (laughs) 
How can we be unified when we think those Christians are so blinded by culture that they don't even see that they're not following Jesus but the ways of the world? How can we be unified when we don't agree on what it looks like to follow Jesus? How? These are really good questions. And they're exactly the kinds of questions Paul is addressing in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. In Ephesians 4, Paul speaks candidly to the Ephesian church about a particular and very important role of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesians that the unity of the church is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. The unity of the church is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Today, as we wrap up this series we've been in about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does, we're going to talk about three aspects of that truth, that the unity of the church is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So the first aspect that we need to look at is the fact of our unity in the Spirit. It's a fact. Paul wants the Ephesian church to know they are one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul's saying, you all have the same spirit. When you were baptized into Christ, when you joined the family of God, you became part of the one body. We all have the same hope the same gospel, the same understanding that this world is hopelessly lost and that Jesus is the only answer to it. That's what Paul said to the church a few paragraphs earlier in Ephesians 2.14. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul is saying somehow when Jesus came, when he lived and died and rose again, he put to death everything that causes division. Jesus' work in his life and death was the way for everyone to join God's family. The sacrifice of Jesus and your baptism into his family means that you are part of now the one family of God. Whether we like it or not, We are family. We are siblings. And there is nothing we can do to change that. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Just like my doctor urging me to make peace with the reality that I'm not 24 anymore, Paul is saying, listen, your unity is a fact. It's a fact. You are one body. You are one family. You are one in Christ. And I wonder if some of us need to make peace with that. (laughs) Despite the reality of our really different ways of understanding the Bible, interpreting the Bible, despite the frustration we might feel toward some other part of the church, despite where those Christians are wrong, despite where we are wrong, we are one body. Have you reflected on that at all? 
How does that fact sit with you? I love the way John Stott said it. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Our unity is a fact. Now, if we're willing to sit with this fact of our unity, we might be relieved at the second truth of the church's unity that Paul tells us here. The second thing Paul tells us is that our unity is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said in verse 3. He says, our unity is the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit provides our unity. The Spirit works our unity. In Ephesians 2.22, Paul said, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the work of unifying us is done by the Spirit. This is good news, family. (laughs) The Spirit does the work of unifying us. What a relief. Because heck if I know how to solve all the problems of the church. I can't maintain unity in my little family of four most of the time. I don't know how to do unity. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. So what a relief that we don't have to. The Holy Spirit is doing the work. The Holy Spirit knows how to do what we don't. The Holy Spirit is stable, secure. The Holy Spirit is undeterred by the many obstacles we see to being unified together as a dwelling place for God. That means the Holy Spirit is building the building of the church, putting one brick on another. Our job, then, is just to not jump out of the Holy Spirit's hands while he's trying to build with us. To stop saying, oh, I don't want to be in this section of the building. Do you know what those other bricks posted on social media? Oh, I don't want to be next to that brick. Their theology is terrible. Oh, please don't put me right next to this brick. That brick doesn't even think women should get to be bricks. I don't want to be by that brick. Paul says the Holy Spirit is doing the job of building our unity. This is really important for us to be aware of, to think about, to reflect on, to thank him for. Because, listen, if we believe what the Bible says, that our unity, our unity is the way the world will believe that God loves them, if we believe that that's truth, that that's the way the world will see, we're in trouble, We're in trouble. We don't do a very good job of loving each other a lot of the time, do we? But Paul tells us the Holy Spirit will do in us what is impossible for us to do in our own human strength. The Holy Spirit is who builds our unity. We just have to cooperate. (laughs) So the unity of the church is a fact. And the unity of the church is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean about our role in building the unity of the church? If the Holy Spirit is who's building it, what what are we supposed to do? Well, our role, in short, is to cooperate. 
to not work against what the Spirit is trying to build in building unity, but to work with the Holy Spirit in building unity. This is what Paul says in verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's saying, just as I am bound in chains for Christ, I want you to voluntarily bind yourselves to each other. To reflect on everything Christ has done for you, focusing on what you have in common in Christ, and choose to bind yourselves together in love for the sake of unity. Paul tells them to put on the kind of character that will help maintain unity. He says, put on humility, put on gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. Humility means having an accurate understanding of yourself an accurate understanding of yourself, to not consider yourself better or worse than other people or more important or less important than other people, especially in the context of unity in the church, it means to remember that although another person's understanding of how to live out the faith might seem really different than yours, maybe even wrong, to not consider yourself, your posture of being better than them. That's humility. Humility is remembering how easy it was for you to be led astray, how easy it is for you to adopt false theology, how easily you didn't understand what you are now so frustrated with someone else for not getting. Humility. And then gentleness. Gentleness is power under control. Listen, just because you can own someone on social media doesn't mean you should. Just because you have a louder and more confident way of speaking doesn't mean you should speak over another. Just because you can point out all of someone's errant theology or practice doesn't mean you should. Just because you're right doesn't mean you need to bludgeon someone because they're wrong. Gentleness seeks the best way to approach a conflict or someone in error in order to win that person back to unity. That's gentleness. And then patience bearing with one another in love. This requires us to remember that all of us are human. We're all human. We all miss the mark. All of us can be led down paths that lead to destruction. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When you love someone, you see them as a person. <laughs> a real human being, not like a caricature of someone that sometimes groups like to make of others. When you love someone, your whole countenance, your whole posture toward them is softened. You care to understand their perspective, not just to tell them that they're wrong. When you love someone, you see, even in the midst of maybe where you disagree or what they're doing that might actually be wrong, in the midst of all that, you see what's good about them. You see the genuineness of their faith. And then even when there's conflict, even if there's an error that needs to be corrected, even when there is a problem, you can see that they are not the problem. They are not the error. 
They are not the conflict. You can separate the person from the belief, the person from the action, the person from the disagreement. That's the kind of character that maintains unity, that doesn't fight against the Holy Spirit's work in building us to be a dwelling place for God. Now, before you start thinking that unity requires us to be a doormat or to ignore every errant theology or harmful action done by someone else in the church, we should talk about what it means to be a peacemaker. Someone who is actively working toward peace. Someone who's actively working toward unity. Well, a peacemaker does four things, okay? A peacemaker is honest. A peacemaker tells the truth. Someone who's committed to maintaining true unity is willing to be honest when there's conflict, when something's wrong, when someone's being treated poorly. A peacemaker doesn't do what Jeremiah accused some false prophets of in the Old Testament, where they walked around just saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. A peacemaker doesn't pretend everything's fine when it's not. Making peace, maintaining unity requires honesty when something's broken. (laughs) It requires us to be honest about our hearts, about the state of others' hearts. Peacemakers are honest. The second thing a peacemaker does is a peacemaker risks pain. A peacemaker risks pain. A peacemaker knows that sometimes when we try to resolve conflict, we try to resolve a problem, we're going to misunderstand each other. Sometimes we might hurt each other. Sometimes we will fail in our attempt to share our hearts in a graceful way. We might have to apologize. We might have to speak difficult truth. But a peacemaker knows that without taking this risk, real unity, real peace aren't possible. And as we learn how to have relationships with diverse people, we're going to mess up. I had to have a black friend tell me, Katie, it's rude to touch my hair. I felt so embarrassed, but I had to learn. Right? We're all going to have to take risks to do community with diverse people. I've messed up. I've said the ignorant thing. It's going to happen. But just holding back and trying real hard not to ruffle any feathers isn't going to help us experience real peace. We have to take a risk. And a peacemaker knows that the risk is worth it. The third thing about peacemakers is peacemakers are fighters. A peacemaker is willing to make trouble to make peace. They know that sometimes real peace, real unity, require us to ruffle feathers. It requires us to say the awkward truth. It's tempting sometimes, you know, to just let things slide. It seems easier It avoids the immediate discomfort of having a conflict and dealing with it. But that's not the way of a peacemaker. A peacemaker takes to heart the words of the late John Lewis, who said, never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. A peacemaker knows the fight is worth it. And finally, a peacemaker, a biblical Christian follower of Jesus, peacemaker, is permeated with the shalom of God, the peace of God. A peacemaker is settled in their hearts about the outcome 
of their efforts to make peace. They're looking for a world that looks more like God's kingdom, a world where all creation can flourish. The outcome of a peacemaker's activity is to advance justice, advance love, advance lasting and genuine peace. James 3.18 says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So a peacemaker's goal isn't just to stir the pot. They're not just riling people up for fun. That's not peacemaking. That's just kind of being a jerk. Can I tell you the truth? Okay, that's not being a peacemaker. A peacemaker is consumed with, is eagerly chasing after the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says he wants them to work at being peacemakers, not begrudgingly, but eagerly to eagerly maintain the unity the Spirit is working out in us. Eagerly means doing everything we can do. Everything. Eagerly means it's a high priority. We're doing it with haste, with intentionality, with urgency. Paul wants the church to see that our cooperation with the unity-building work of the Holy Spirit is of utmost importance. He wants the church to make our unity its number one priority. And why? Well, we've said already, haven't we? When the church loves each other, when the church is working toward unity in the midst of great diversity, it causes the world to take notice. It causes people to start thinking that there might be something to this whole Jesus thing. If those guys can love each other because of Jesus, wow, I might want some of that. If people come in here and see Democrats and Republicans and black and white and Asian and Latino and people from different countries, people who work in different kinds of jobs, they see us all worshiping together, loving each other. How beautiful in our broken and divided world. How beautiful. The Spirit's working of our unity, family, is the credibility of the gospel we preach. It's what makes other people believe what we say about Jesus. So we need Harbor to cooperate with the Spirit's work of unity. Whew. That's a big, it's a big task, isn't it? Let's take a few minutes together as we wrap up our time together today. And let's reflect a little bit on our own hearts, the state of our own hearts around this idea of the Spirit's work of unifying the church. Maybe you need today to just sit with the reality of our unity. Maybe you need to make peace with the facts. The unity, the reality that the Spirit has already done for us, what we are incapable of doing. How does it change your attitude toward others in the body of Christ to sit with the reality that we are one body? Is there a part of your heart that just needs to make peace with what the doctor says and cooperate with the Spirit's work of unity. Maybe you need to consider whether the knowledge that the Holy Spirit is building our unity, does that bring you relief or does that bring you some resistance? Do you have some resistance in your heart to that? Maybe this morning you need to just sit with those reactions of either peace or resistance and ask the Holy Spirit to help you get curious about why you feel that way. Maybe you need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you cultivate the kind of character that builds peace. Maybe you know that your attitude toward others in the body of Christ is not always characterized by humility or gentleness or patience or forbearance. 
Maybe in these next moments, you need to just confess that and ask the Holy Spirit for help. Or maybe this morning you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you about some situation in your life where you need to be a peacemaker, where you need to get courageous and say truth and work toward peace. Maybe you can ask the Holy Spirit for courage to speak truth, to risk pain, to fight for unity, and to be a bringer of God's shalom into your world. In these next few moments, you're going to have some time to consider what God is asking of you this morning, what God is saying to you about your participation in the Holy Spirit's work of unity. Let us be a body of believers that works with the Holy Spirit instead of against the Holy Spirit. Let us be a body of believers that eagerly works to maintain the unity given to us by the Spirit and the peace we have in our shared baptism in the family of Christ. Let me pray. Spirit, we confess we need your help this morning. Unity is hard. Sometimes we chase unity by, um, by just avoiding conflict. Sometimes we reject unity because it seems impossible. God, there's, there's so much about the unity of the church that is beyond us, and we are so relieved and grateful that the Holy Spirit is working out what we can't do ourselves. So will you help us this morning to cooperate with what you are trying to do in us as a community? Help us cooperate. Help us be peacemakers who chase after unity, who chase after bringing peace to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.